uh, in the spring, we looked at Ephesians 1 through 3, and then we took about four months off, and now we are going to finish Ephesians over the next few months. As you are coming in, I hope you were able to pick up a bookmark. This will this will show you where we're going week in and week out, so you can read the passage before you come in on Sunday, being ready to hear the word that is going to be preached. So this morning we're going to be in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. In the spring, as we were working through Ephesians 1 through 3, we saw beautiful truths of who we are in Christ. We saw deep doctrine, theological foundations of us being united in Christ. And now, over this fall, we're going to be exhorted to walk in a certain way. Over the next three months, we're going to finish this book. And what we're going to see is that us being new creations, having a new identity in Christ, Paul is now going to lay out how we now live in light of being new creations. You see, over the past, or over the spring, we laid, we were undergirded by incredible doctrine and theology, but now we must put it into practice. One, one pastor says, doctrinal input, right? Us hearing and us, us having doctrine implanted in our hearts must be matched by practical output. We have to be living that which we believe and we say we believe. Equal weight must be given to both doctrine and practice. Another pastor says, they must not put all the weight on doctrine and none on practice, nor all the weight on practice and just a little, if any, all at all on doctrine. You see, we want to be balanced Christians. We want to know, but we also want to do, right? We want to obey that which we've been taught. That is what we looked at a few weeks ago in the Great Commission. Jesus says, go, therefore, and make disciples teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, right? We teach, but we teach to obey. So as we begin these final chapters, Paul draws our attention to what he's just written in the first half of the book. As we begin in 4.1, he says, I therefore, I therefore, whenever you see a therefore, right, we always want to know what is it therefore. Paul is pointing us back. He's sending us back to what has already been written. And he has described in the first three chapters our new life in Christ and also our old self. I want to I just list out a few things in 1 through 3 to remind us of our spring. How has Paul described unbelievers in the first three chapters? You see, in, two, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he says, you are dead in your sins and trespasses. He says that you're followers of Satan. He tells us that we're children of, of wrath. He tells us that we're living after our fleshly desires. Later on in chapter 2, in verse 12, he says that we're separated from Christ. We're alienated. We're strangers. We're without hope. The, the picture he paints of unbelievers, of us, before we knew Jesus, is dark and bleak. There is no hope. We're alienated from God. We're strangers to this promise. But we also saw in those first three chapters that there is new life in Christ. 
This is how he describes our new life. In 1.1, he calls us saints. In 1.4, he says we're chosen. In 1.5, he says we're adopted. In 2.5-8, he says we've been saved, we've been seated, we've been raised. We are alive in Christ Jesus. In verse 10, he says we're God's workmanship. In 2.13, he says that we've been brought near. In 2.16, he says that we've been reconciled. In chapter 3, verse 6, he says we're part of this one body. And we're partakers of the promise. We're no longer alienated. We're no longer strangers. But we've been brought into the family of God. Adopted as sons and daughters. So the question that comes to mind as I see this therefore... And as I think back over chapters 1 through 3, does it not make sense that, he, that we, who would be called, we, we would be called to live differently now that we've been united with Christ? Does that not make sense? Right? Paul now is going to lay out, this is now the way you live. We live in light of our call. Our big idea, as you'll see on the screen, from this passage, our calling as disciples demands we walk in a worthy manner. It demands it. You are new. You've been saved. You've been made alive. Now you must walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Let me read this passage, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to just ask a few questions about these six verses. So let's read. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise for your word. We know that it is God-breathed. We know that it is useful to bring us to maturity. So God, we plead with you now by your spirit, would you do a work in our lives? Lord, would you give us the ability to live in light of what this passage is calling us to do? Would we be so in love with Jesus that our words, our deeds, our thoughts would be in line and conform to Him? We want to we be like Jesus. We want to look like Jesus. We want to show the world this good news that Jesus saves. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So our calling as disciples demands we walk in a worthy manner. That's what Paul says. I, therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So the first question I want to ask of this passage is, what is this calling? What is this calling? He says that we've been called to something. We need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. So what is it? Well, Paul has spent the last three chapters explaining this call. In, one, in chapter 1, 3 to 14, he lays out the blessings of salvation. 
You see, we've been chosen, we've been adopted, we've been predestined. And he says, these are the blessings that come from this call. God has made a way for us to be with him. It says in verse 4 of chapter 1, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This is God's plan. This is the calling on our lives. If you are in Christ Jesus, he chose you before the foundation of the world. This is incredible. This is the calling. It is life. And it is blessing. In 118, Paul mentions this wonderful hope. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? We've been called to a wonderful hope. An incredible inheritance. In, in chapter 1, 20 to 22, in verse 26, this calling is a uniting with Christ. We have been united with Christ. Later on in chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, he says that we have been reconciled to God. Through the blood of Christ, we've been reconciled to God. And then he also says right there that we've been made into a new humanity. If you remember, this is where Paul tells the Jews and the Gentiles, you are no longer two, but now you've been made one. You are a new humanity. This is the calling on our lives. In verse 15, verse 19, and verse 21 in chapter 2, we see that we're members of God's household. We're members of the household of God. We're now partakers of this promise. And then in verse 18 of chapter 2, he says that we now have freedom to access the Father through the Spirit. This calling comes with abundant blessing. This calling is new life. This calling is, is being made alive. And this is God's plan. This is what he has promised. This is what he is doing right now. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. We've been called. And now he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. You see, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, this urging from Paul is to you. It is to us. So the second question I want to ask of this passage is what does walking in a manner worthy of our calling look like? What does it look like? Paul, you, you've told us to, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Well, what does that look like? Well, he tells us. He immediately tells us in verse 2, with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know, as you think about those characteristics of this calling and walking in a manner worthy of it, you think about those characteristics that he has just listed. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain this unity. This, this calling, this worthy manner, it looks a lot like Jesus. It's who we're called to be. Be imitators of Christ. Right? Be like Jesus. Y'all remember the, the little bracelets everyone 
war in the 90s, early 2000s, what would Jesus do? Like, it's not a bad question. It's who we want to be and model our lives after is Christ. Paul is telling us the way we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called is to look like Jesus. Paul is modeling this as he writes. You see this, right? I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Paul is in prison right now. He told us this in 3.1 as well. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul is in prison. And he is modeling what he's calling the Ephesians to do. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. I'm doing it. I'm a prisoner right now. I'm in chains. And I'm walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. I'm, I'm walking in a manner worthy of what my Lord has called me to. The reason we know this is because in Philippians 1, Paul again is writing to another church, this time to the church in Philippi. And he tells them, he actually thanks God that he's in prison because the gospel's going forth to jailers, to the centurion, to, to those around him, to the Romans, because he's living in a manner worthy of the gospel. Like, this is what he's doing, and this is what he's modeling to these Ephesians. And this is what he's modeling to us. So when he urges us, when he calls us to this, he's not just flippantly saying this. He's saying, look at my life. This is how I'm living. I want you to live in the same way. This is the call on our lives, regardless of what we're going through. We have a lot of people right now that are, that are sick. Like their, their calling doesn't change because they're sick. We have churches and Christians all over the world right now being persecuted. Their calling doesn't change because they're being persecuted. Through, through whatever life throws at you, through trials and temptations, through persecutions, we are called and we're urged, exhorted to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. So let's look at some of these characteristics that Paul now urges us to walk in. First, he says, I want you to walk humbly. I want you to walk in humility. With all humility. Again, our pattern is Jesus. Paul shows this pattern in Philippians 2. If you're familiar with Philippians 2, Paul urges the church there, put others' interests before your own. Put others before yourself. And then what he does is he paints this picture of Jesus. The, the one who was humiliated. The one full of humility. He says, Jesus, who was God, became man. This is what he says in Philippians 2. He took on flesh and he came as a baby. And then it says that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus took our shame. Jesus took our flesh. And he came. He humbled himself. It's a, it's a lowliness. We looked at this a few weeks ago in, in Matthew 11. It's a lowliness that is being called here. It's a putting others before yourself. And this humility, I, was, I read in Isaiah 6 this morning through my, through my Bible reading plan. And in Isaiah 6, I think we see kind of the, the foundation of humility there. 
Because I think what, what Isaiah sees, it says that Isaiah is in, in, in the days of, of Uzziah or something like that. And, and what he says, he says, I, I saw a, a vision of, of the throne. And, and in the throne, there was, there was this, the, the Lord. He said, and then he just calls out and he says, it filled the throne. The, his, his glory filled the room. And so he's seeing this vision of this holy, holy, holy God. This Lord of hosts, whose, whose glory is so overwhelming that Isaiah can only say one thing. He says, woe is me. I think this is humility. Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And then, he, then corporately, he says, and I live, I live with people of unclean lips. Like, like he's just calling out to God because he sees God's glory, and that's the only response. Is woe is me, I'm a sinner. I'm in need of cleansing. This is the call. This is what Paul is saying here. This is humility. As we see the glory of God, as we see the beauty of the gospel, as we truly grasp that Jesus is the one who saves, the only response is woe is me. Help. I need you, God. For us to be self-centered and selfish is not the way of the cross. It's not the way of Christianity. Woe is me. The idea of, be, of behind humility is thinking of yourself less. Right? That's what it is. I'm putting aside my desires. I'm putting aside myself and I'm looking after others. If this is done in the church, man, we're going to see a world that could be completely turned upside down because this is not the way of our world. The Romans, as Paul's writing this word here, the Romans saw humility as weakness. They would make fun of this. Our world does the same. Let us walk in humility. Let us be humble. This is the manner that we're be, we, being, we are being called to. The second characteristic that Paul points out here is with gentleness. I like this, this definition. Consideration for others and a willingness to waive one's rights. Actually considering others and then a willingness to waive one's rights. That's what it means to be gentle. We looked at this as well. Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly. He told us this in Matthew 11. We saw this a few weeks ago. A consideration for others and a willingness to waive one's rights. It's a, a, another way of, of translating this is meekness. It's a power under control. It's self-control, right? We're self-controlled people. That's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We walk humbly, we walk gently, and we walk patiently. We're long-suffering. We allow, this is so hard, this is so difficult for me. We allow for other shortcomings and endures and endure wrongs, right? We, we want to see others built up. So when they do something wrong or when they have shortcomings, we do not attack them, but we go to them to help them be built up. This is hard. This is hard for me as a dad. Like when I see my boys do something wrong, like I immediately want to just go get them, right? 
But the way we, the way we walk in a manner worthy is with patience. With patience. We want to really grab a hold of one another and walk patiently with one another. We want to be there when people fall so we can pick them up and say, let's do it again. Right? We want to be patient and we want to walk patiently. This is the call here with all humility and gentleness, with patience. And then another characteristic, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. This, to me, is the practical outworking of patience. This is what it means to, to be patient. We bear with one another in love. And remember, Paul's writing to a local church. right? Paul's writing to a local church here. So there is an assumption, right, that we're going to have to bear with one another, right? That we're going to have to go through hard times. We're going to have to go through conflict, right? That's what everybody told me when we were coming to Charlotte and, and people started hearing, hey, y'all are working alongside of Newell. Y'all are working alongside of an older congregation. They were like, be ready to bear with one another in love. And I was like, we're ready because we're Christians and they're Christians and we're going to see what God does. And I'll be honest with you, there's been a lot of love and maybe, maybe from some people's sides there's been a lot of bearing with one another, but I would say it's been categorized by a lot of love and a lot of unity and it's been a joy. It's been, it's been beautiful to see us come together. But there is an assumption here from Paul and there is reality that as we grow and as we do life together, that we're going to have to bear with one another because there's going to be conflict. There's going to be struggle. And that's okay because we're going to respond appropriately out of an overflow of love. Right? That's what we respond with. We bear with love. And the reason we do this is because in the spring, in verse 17 of chapter 3, we saw that we are rooted and grounded in love. We're rooted and grounded in love. That's who we are as believers. So the most natural thing that flows out when we have to bear with one another is love for one another. We have a true love for one another because we've been bought by the blood of Jesus. And then Paul finishes this first section of 4, 1 through 6 with an exhortation, with a command. Eager or make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is a call to unity. Earlier, when Caleb was praying, he looked at John 17. Jesus longs for his church to be unified. He prays for unity. Paul here says we need to be eager to maintain this unity. There's an urgency to this call to be eager to maintain. One translation says, do it now. Do it now. This unity is not mustered up within us. But Paul says it comes from the Spirit. He is the unifier. He is the one that brings unity. This unity is visible. It's visible. That's what Jesus calls for and, and prays for in John 17. 
we maintain this unity. And as we maintain this unity, it shines forth in this world. Unity is beautiful. As, as we walk side by side, coming from different backgrounds, different generations, different socioeconomic statuses, when we have unity, different ethnicities, when we have unity, that's beautiful to the world. Our world's in chaos. There is no unity. Families are broken. Right? The only thing right now that I see people unified over is college football. Right? And that ain't even unified. Because a lot of times there's people going, this quarterback's terrible. We need to be playing this quarterback. Why'd you run the ball when you should have thrown it? There's not even unity in college football. But there should be unity in the church. We should be unified. Because we all came from something that was dead. And now we've been made alive. That's the beauty of the gospel. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. Your sin separated you from God separated you had no relationship with God and then you heard the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ that he came that he was perfect where you deserve death Jesus took our death he took our sin and he died on the cross yet he did not stay dead three days later he was raised from the dead showing that he is the victorious king over sin and death and Satan and now that if we will confess and believe in Christ Jesus, turning from our sin, we will be saved. That's the unifying mark of the church. We've been saved and we've been given new life. We're a new humanity. That's why we can be eager to maintain this unity that's given by the Spirit. And then Paul says, in the bond of peace. That's what holds it together. It's kept and held together through peace. This is work. Right? This, this, these, this language should, should really show us, no, this is work. This is a striving. This is going to take some time and effort. But it is also part of walking in the Spirit. As we walk by the Spirit, as we put to death the deeds of the flesh, there will be peace and unity among us. Again, I want to celebrate what the Lord's been doing at this church between these congregations. I got to celebrate and rejoice in this this past Thursday with a lot of pastors in our, in our, uh, in our association. And it's a joy every time I get to celebrate, every time I get to share the story. Because God has been so kind to us. He's been so kind. Another pastor commenting on this, he says these virtues, characteristics we just looked at, and the supernatural unity to which they testify are probably the most powerful testimony the church can have because they are in such contrast to the attitudes and the disunity of the world. What an incredible witness and testimony we have as we walk in unity. As we walk in unity, we will see the mission of the church fulfilled. We will see disciples made. We will be a compelling community. One that is a light to this place. You see, the, the gospel brings 
enemies together and makes them friends. The gospel reconciles us to God and to one another. To pursue these qualities, I just want you to think about this for a minute, to pursue these qualities, this idea of humility, gentleness, patience, love, and unity, to pursue these qualities, we must renounce, right? There's something we need to put on and put off, right? Paul's going to continue to do this in chapter 4 and 5. We must renounce self-centeredness. We've got to get rid of self-centeredness. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ going forward. We must renounce harshness. If your toes are being stepped on with that one, you're in good company. Right? We must renounce harshness. We must renounce the tyranny of our own agendas. Again, it's not about your plans. It's not about my plans. It's about the plan of the Lord. And we know His plan is to see a people redeemed from all peoples of the earth. We must renounce ideal, idealistic expectations and we must renounce indifference and passivity. We must walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and of this calling. The third question I want to ask of this passage is why? Why do we walk in this way? Why do we walk in this way? Well, first, as we've already seen, it is our calling. That's why we walk in unity. That's why we walk in humility and gen gentleness. That's why we walk in love. We have been called and our lives have been radically changed. We have gone from death to life. We have gone from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. Right? That's, what it, that, that's just the natural outworking of that therefore in verse 1. <laughs> Chapters 1 through 3 undergirds us with theology and who we are. Chapters 4 through 6 says, now this is how you live. This is who you are, therefore now live like this. And then, also, our unity. I know we just talked through that a little bit, but our unity. Paul's going to continue through the next few verses next week and the week after. We're going to continue to see this unity. We are unified. There's unity in our beliefs. Unity is not compromised, right? We're not going to compromise unity through rejecting doctrine. But it's upheld through holding fast to our theological convictions, right? We see churches and Christians all over the U.S. dismissing theological convictions, walking away from what the Word of God says because they want to be accepted by the world. That doesn't bring unity. That brings disunity. As we uphold the Word of God and we hold fast to the convictions of this word, that will even, that'll be even greater unity. And that's what Paul argues here in these final couple verses. Starting in verse 4, he says there's one body. And we know this, there is the church. There's a church universal. That is all Christians at all times. But then there's local churches. Right? We are a local church. This one body is visible in each local church. We're one body. There's one spirit. There's one body and one spirit. This spirit, as we've already seen, he brings unity and he brings cohesion to the body. He was promised by Jesus in John. We're sealed by him. We saw that in Ephesians 1. And he indwells us. Right? We're sealed and now he indwells us. He lives within us. There's one spirit. 
And then he says, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, there's one hope. There's an expectancy of Christ reconciling all things to himself. He says that just as you were called to the one hope, verse 1, you walk in a manner worthy to which you've been called. This wonderful hope that was mentioned in 118. There is hope. What is our hope in? That Christ will return and reconcile all things to himself. This is what we long for. This is what we want to see happen. And we're all hopeful of this. We move forward in this one hope. There's one Lord. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. One hope. One Lord. One faith. One faith. There's not a multitude of faiths. There's one faith. Regardless of what the world says, regardless of what other churches say, there's one faith. And if anyone else comes and preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed. That's what Paul says in Galatians. There's one faith. There's a common body of belief. There's one confession of Christ. One faith. There's one baptism. One baptism. We are baptized into Christ Jesus. We know what it represents, the, the physical baptism in the water. We know what it represents. It's a dying with Christ and it's being raised to newness of life. There's one baptism. And then Paul finishes this section. There's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. God is Father and he is sovereign over all. He is transcendent. He's over all. He's eminent. He's through all and in all. Our God is sovereign. He is one God and Father. There's unity. There's unity. This is why we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We are unified as believers. Many of us, if we were asked certain questions about the Bible, we would have the right answers. We can tell you what we believe, but the call on our lives is to live it out. Is to live it out. We, we don't have another choice, right? Like, there's no other choice. If you've been made alive in Christ, if you have been called out of darkness into the kingdom of Christ, there's only one way to live now. And it's walking in a manner worthy of that calling to which you've been called. May we look different than those around us. May we talk differently. May we think differently. May we act differently. As I mentioned earlier, Paul was living this way as he's writing this as a prisoner. He was making disciples in prison. His life circumstances did not change the way he lived his life. His life, his life aligned with his beliefs. So the final question I have for us, and we're going to pray, is does yours, does yours, does your life align with what you believe? Let's pray. Our Father, we give you praise for this day. We give you praise for your word. Father, may we delight in your word. Father, may we find great joy 
in the gospel today. Knowing that we were once dead in our sins and trespasses, but now have been made alive in Christ Jesus. Now we're called to live in a manner worthy of that calling. Oh God, I pray that as we go out this week, that we would be humble, that we would be gentle, that we would be patient, that we would be loving and unified. Father, please be exalted as we sing now and as we fellowship with one another. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.